You're listening to Amphibicast. Welcome back, everyone. Thanks for joining me again for another episode. I hope everyone enjoyed last week's episode with Nick Gordon. And I know it was a little bit different from what everyone's used to. And a couple of people kind of um, kind of razzed me a little bit about it. Not, you know, technically the, the Abronia genus. Yes, they are lizards. They're not amphibians. I get it. Um, I got a lot of positive feedback all, all overall. And um, the general vein of this show is always going to be amphibian-focused content. But every so often, I think it might be a little bit interesting to kind of go off topic a little bit and find some species that might share some of the same concerns, some of the same issues with specific husbandry, etc., things like that. And overall, I found it interesting because, to be honest, a lot of us who do keep amphibians, many of us do keep other species as well. And I thought that the Abronia genus was exceptionally interesting because of some of the similarities that they have with dart frogs in terms of their locations and the, the, the threats that they face and the habitat fragmentation, etc. So, again, I hope everyone enjoyed it. If you didn't get a chance to listen to it, go back and check it out. A couple of shout-outs I want to give to before tonight's episode. I, I want everyone to know I really appreciate all my listeners out there. I mean, you guys are really what makes this thing going, and as long as I have listeners, I'm going to keep giving you guys as much content as I possibly can. Uh, got a lot of downloads up in Alaska. So <laughs> if you're up in Alaska, I want to thank you a lot for tuning in. I get stats from time to time. I like to give shout outs to my listeners by their locations. Um, definitely Alaska. Somebody's out in, in, I think it's out in Seattle too. Um, I want to thank you guys out there and everybody else around the world who's listening. I always appreciate it. Now, speaking of around the world, tonight's episode, I'm going to have my first guest from out of country. Tonight, my guest is Josh Allen, and he's going to be coming to me from Peru. And down there, he acts as a kind of like a guide. And he'll get into different areas of, of Peru, and he'll basically take people out on, um, I guess you could call it an excursion, but um, he's going to tell us more. So he, get, he gets into contact with a lot of different species of frog, um, takes some pretty amazing photographs, and kind of like lives the dream down there. So it made for a really interesting interview, and I hope you guys enjoy it. So let's get into it. So Josh, welcome. How's it going? Hey, going pretty good. How are you doing? Good, 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 good. Um, had some pretty nasty weather here today. It turned out to be a nice afternoon. Um, how's everything going down there in Peru? Uh, things are going pretty good here, actually. Um, we're just coming out of uh, our winter and going into summer, and uh, the rains are just starting to come. So here in Cusco, where I am, we're at like uh, I'm at like 3,400 meters in elevation. It's like uh, really, it's really high. I don't know what it is in feet. It's like 10 or 12,000 feet in elevation. It's super high. So it, it gets really cold here. But uh, luckily, uh, there's a lot of weather influence from the low Amazon jungle, which isn't too far from here. And it keeps the climate in this high elevation uh, very mild. So, you know, we, we really never get freezing temperatures or very rarely. And, uh, you know, it's, it's been dry for many, many months. And the rains are finally starting to come back, which is really nice for me because... I've got a collection of carnivorous plants, and they need um, pure water, and I collect rainwater for them. So, I'm I'm really excited to have the rains back. <laughs> cool. Yeah, I know. I'm I'm at I'm at sea level, so we have kind of a moderate climate here. But, um, yeah, actually, climate is kind of one of the things I wanted to talk. One of the topics I actually wanted to get into. But uh, first off, let's just back up a little bit. Why don't you tell us your story? Like, what's 
I mean, you've been guiding tours in Peru for like seven years now, right? But before you got into that, like when you were when you were young, how did you first get involved with like the outdoors and wildlife and kind of what ultimately led to getting into things like amphibians? Okay, so um, first off, I'd, I'd like to mention that um, I've actually lived in Peru for just over seven years, and I've been guiding here for roughly about five, and a lot of that has been like a big learning curve for me, but I'm, you know, I'm, I'm finally starting to get it figured out pretty well. So, um, yeah, my story starts off uh, basically like when I was six years old, um, my grandmother took me in the backyard with a little bucket and a spoon from the kitchen. <laughs> she took me in the backyard and she lifted up the ivy plants that were growing along the fence and on the ground in the backyard. And uh, she scooped up these little sow bugs or roly polies as we used to call them. And she put them in the bucket. And from that day on, uh, well, there wasn't a spoon to be found in the kitchen. And I was obsessed with, uh, insects and animals by then and so my father also worked in um tree care he was a professional arborist and he had his own company which was very successful in the bay area of california and he used to find animals all the time on the job site you know uh, whether it be owls or hawks or raccoons or whatever that were living in the trees and uh, oftentimes he would um, <clears throat> he would rescue these animals, like if they were babies that that got lost from their parents, or if it was an animal that got hurt or something like that on the job. He would always rescue them and take take them to a to a rescue center, right? But first he would bring them home to show the family. And so I, at a very young age, I had a, a pretty intense exposure to a lot of different animals and. Um, that's uh, really what got it all started for me. But the things that uh, for me stood out the most always were invertebrates, arachnids and insects and other things like that. I remember my, my father brought home two scorpions that he found on the job site one time. And I was only six years old, you know, or six or seven, somewhere around there. And I was so fascinated with them that uh, I... I got up the gumption to, to pick them up and I was holding these scorpions at like six or seven years old. And my father caught me holding him and he, he punished me pretty bad. And then he, he took the scorpions back to the forest and let them go. Um, but you know, at that time I was just really hooked. I remember finding a black widow at my school and I don't even know how I knew how to, tease it out with like a like a piece of grass but i teased it out and it came out and tried to eat it and i i cut the web off so the spider couldn't get back into its hide and i don't know how i knew how to pick it up but i picked it up you know i blew on it so it, it would it, it would uh fold its legs in and then i grabbed it by its legs so i could safely carry it home like that carried it all the way home and i let it go under the wood shingles on the house by the front door and that spider ended up making a huge web and I remember I used to go out and catch flies and bees and stuff and throw them in the web to, to feed the spider. And one, one night I heard my, my parents talking about a huge black widow that was outside the door. 
And what are they going to do about it? Should they kill it or whatever? And I heard that kill it. And I, I just like freaked out and I started crying. I'm like, no, that's my pet black widow. You know, I, I, I brought it all the way from school and I let it go there. And I feed it every day and all this stuff. And I convinced them to leave the black widow there. And it was basically kind of like the, the family pet. Uh, we ended up naming it Ariel. I don't know why, but uh, yeah, it lived out its entire life there. And uh, one of the really fortunate things on my end, I guess, was I had parents that were very, very supportive of my interests. And when I was nine, my father bought home a tarantula that he found. It was a, a male of funnel pelma species that he found on a job site. And that was what got me hooked on tarantulas. And at the age of nine, some point along the line there, we ended up moving to Washington State. You know, I had just gotten my tarantula from my dad, and I took off to Washington State with my mom. Uh, my, my parents got a divorce by then, and um, my mother had remarried, so we went off to Washington State with, uh, with her new husband. And I brought my tarantula with me, and it was a male, so obviously it didn't live long. But uh, um, when I was 12, my mother went to Arkansas to visit my cousins there. And they ended up finding um, a Phonopelma hensi, an adult female. And my mom brought it home for me. And that was, you know, basically the first tarantula that started a, a, a very large collection of invertebrates uh, that I maintained for many years. And uh, when I when I was 20, I moved down to Arizona. Living in Arizona, I got to see a lot of these things in the wild, you know. And the more I saw them in the wild, the more I realized that I enjoyed seeing them in the wild and not in cages. So I ended up keeping less and less. Um, and now my whole focus on the whole – my whole interest in the hobby or in animals and wildlife and everything has completely taken a huge turn. You know, it's interesting that you say that because, like, as also just to back up, I have an Aphodopelma calcotes. I have an adult female, and every October, right around this time, she disappears right before Halloween and she webs a burrow up. And then I usually don't see her again, so maybe like the second week of April. So I know the Aphodopelma is just something just really unique about them. I mean, they're not that necessarily that colorful. Well, some of them are, like the, the Morier that just came into the hobby is pretty colorful, but. They're like a great like gateway species into getting into keeping kind of unorthodox type of animals, I guess, outside of the realm of dogs and cats. Um, now, I also agree with you. Like I, I've kind of like when I was younger, I kind of had the collector bug. You know, I wanted to own like every single species. And the older I got, the more I started to realize I'm like, you know, I, I, I kind of really appreciate seeing all these things out in the wild. I don't necessarily want to have everything and the stuff that I have rather than building like a, I mean, I have a reasonably sized collection for like a, a civilian, so to speak, but, um, I'm trying not to let it grow any further. I'm trying to kind of expand the enclosures that I have for all my existing animals because I don't know. I just, I just, I feel like I owe it to them. You know what I mean? I feel like I'm going to have these things, especially the tarantulas. I mean, they're going to be around for a long time and I want to commit to, giving them the best care as I can before I, you know, start to even consider getting something else. So that's, that's my whole, my whole spiel. 
like like that old saying goes, you know, quant quality is better than quantity. You know, you can have you can have like five hundred animals in your basement, but what kind of quality of life are you giving them? Or you can have you know like fifty animals and then give them, or even less, twenty animals, whatever, and then give them the best care possible, the best cages, large enclosures with everything they need, and uh, you know, just really focus on doing it right rather than having more, you know? Yeah, that's it's, definitely, definitely what I've been going for. Now, I mean, in, yeah. your, in your tenure as a guide, what are some more memorable encounters that you've had with the local wildlife in Peru? And like, by that, I mean, like, you know, what are some moments where you just said, wow, like I, I never in my life thought I would see something like this. Wow. Uh, well <clears throat> sorry i don't mean to put you on the spot too much <laughs> no 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 worries i'm just like trying to think you know um like i said you know when i was back in the states and i didn't see any of this stuff in the wild i had the i had the collection bug as well you know i collected a bunch of tarantulas and poison frogs and even venomous snakes. I kept a lot of arboreal vipers and rattlesnakes and things. And then I started seeing, you know, the rattlesnakes all the time in the wild. And I just, I quit keeping them. <laughs> and, um, cause I didn't need to. Um, when I came to Peru, I saw all the amazing frogs that I used to keep, you know, in cages back in the States. I used to keep them seen him in the wild and that to me is just a completely different experience it, it takes you to just another level you know uh another level of understanding the species for one and two just a complete different understanding of nature and how we manage nature you know seeing things in cages is one thing but you see it in the wild and it's just a it's just another thing altogether you know back back in the united states or even europe or wherever carpet pythons are so dirt common it, you know that's what a lot of people just call a garbage snake a carpet python you know or ball pythons you know those are like garbage snakes they feed them to their king cobras yeah um, i i i i know what you mean it it it's yeah For, first off it's amazing to me that anyone could even say that a snake is garbage and second off, when you see that quote unquote garbage snake in the wild, for me anyways, it becomes one of the coolest things. Seeing a carpet python in in a pet store in someone's cage, I was like, oh, hey, it's a carpet python. When I went to Australia and I saw one in the wild, I was like, oh my God, that's so amazing. I like picked up this seven foot log carpet python. I have a picture. It's like, like telescoping up in the air and I'm like holding it up and looking up at it. I'm like just fascinated, like, oh my God a carpet python in the wild, you know, it's totally different. I developed on the spot a completely new respect for the species, and I saw it completely differently. So, um, you know, the same thing happened with the poison frogs and everything else that I see in the wild. And I think, first off, I have to say that that is the best part of uh, seeing things in the wild, going herping and and discovering a species in the wild, where it lives, how it lives, um, all these little details, you know, like 
you develop a newfound respect for the species. At least I do. So that's been the best thing for me. And then as far as like some of the things that I've seen that have just been like mind blowing that I never thought I'd ever see, um, hands down, it has to be uh, finding a big adult female. Uh, and by big, I mean like it was like 90 centimeters long. You know, it was right around. No, it wasn't even 90 centimeters long. It had to have been like 80, 70 or 80 centimeters long. So it was like two and a half feet long. It was a big adult female. Maybe it was around three feet. I don't know. But a big adult female, Bothriopsis bilineata, Smeragdina. It's a, it's the two-striped forest viper. Um, the subspecies that we have in Peru is Smeragdina. Um, and it's just, it's it's an amazing arboreal pit viper that's like a really light uh pastel mint green color with all these little black fleckings all over it and then it's got a light light cream stripe down the um down the down each side and uh it's just a really impressive snake they're super super hard to find in peru uh, not by any means a rare snake. It's, it's super common within its range, but it's just really, really difficult to find in Peru. And I was guiding a client in the on the southern end of the Cordillera Sierra, on the southeast end. There, there, there's a there's a city called Atalaya, and we were there in in the woods out of outside of the city. Um, in some very remote locations, looking for a, a poison frog called Ranitmea manzolini. And uh, we were driving down the road, and I heard a male frog calling in a, in a xanthosoma plant. And so we stopped, and we got out, and I, I climbed up the, the, the road cut to try and find the frog. And it was right next to a chakra, someone's... someone's um, uh, agricultural land, which they've completely destroyed. Um, the frogs often are common around the borders of these chakras because there is where a lot of these xanthosoma plants grow, and that's where they deposit their tadpoles. So um, I heard the male calling, and I go, I go up the the road cut around the plant to try and figure out where exactly the frog's calling from, and. Like I, I, I stick my my head and my hands through this bush and I'm opening the bush looking through to, to see the xanthosoma plant and I start stepping through, right? And I step right on a stick, like this long thin stick that was on the ground. And just as I'm about to take another step, I look down at my feet. Cause I always look down at my feet just to be on the safe side and, and good thing I did because had I taken another step I would have practically stepped right on the snake because it was coiled on the very little branch that I stepped on and I remember looking down and I just like by draw hit the floor I was like oh my god I just found my dream snake you know that's like the the one species on my list that I wanted to see more than anything and I'd been looking for it for several years and I never found it but there it was like right in front of me and i was just I, I was in disbelief so i actually posted a video of that moment on facebook if you if you go on my facebook you can find it in there it's really funny i'm like wide-eyed and very 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 happy <laughs> so that for me was like one of the coolest moments and you know aside from that moment it's just 
Finding every poison frog species for me has been excellent. Finding Atelopus polker has been excellent. Uh, yeah, just yeah. That was that was what I was gonna. Any, I'm yeah. I'm that finding, was. I'm sorry. I'm talking. No, I'm sorry. I apologize. I interrupted you. No. So basically, finding any any really interesting species uh, for the first time is just mind blowing. Sometimes, you know, it's, it, uh, it's oftentimes like you know you'll run into something and it's you're just you're not prepared for it. I mean, it's one thing like for for like someone like myself, you know, I have some species that are a little bit shyer than others. And it's kind of rewarding when you see them out and about. But the other thing is, this is in my house. I mean, I'm, I am I know it's there. I know I'm going to see it. But when you have a, like a, a chance encounter with something that you thought you would never really see or something that you know is around, it's common, but you've never seen one and you actually come fronted. It's almost like you're not prepared for it. It's, uh, it's very exciting. That's for sure. Yeah. And speaking of, speaking of uh, a certain species being very shy, um, here's a here's a good example here. In the hobby, Randy Tomea um, Benedicta is known to be a very shy species. <clears throat> it's also known to be very, very extremely difficult to find. But uh, I have a, a really good location for this frog. It's an excellent location. I go there and... I can almost guarantee that we'll find several frogs. Um, and the really, really cool thing about it, you know, in, in, in the hobby, uh, many people tell you that they're shy. Some people tell you they're not, they're not so shy. But when you see them in the wild, they're not so shy. They're actually fairly bold. You can walk right up on them and, you know, they'll, 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 they'll start hopping away from you, but they're not, they're not jumping in the leaf litter trying to hide or anything. You can walk right up on them and, pick them up off your hand or pick them up off the ground in your hand and they'll just sit there, put them on a leaf. The, you know, they try and hop away from you cause they get spooked, but they're not super shy. And then once they get used to you, they'll just sit there and you can, they let you take photos of them and everything. Um, in fact, um, I took some clients to the spot to, to get photos of these frogs. And we found like seven or eight frogs in an hour. And, um, there was one frog in particular that was not shy, absolutely not shy. So I found it hopping in the leaf litter on the ground, and I told my client, hey, come here, here's, here's a frog. And I just left it there. I walked off, and he went up to the frog, and he, he got his camera out, and he started taking pictures. The frog hopped up onto a plant and onto a leaf, and then it hopped right toward him, and he just kept taking pictures. And I started walking my way back, and I was watching. I was just sitting there watching uh, my client interacting with the frog. And the frog hops closer and closer. And it gets to the edge of the leaf, and it looks up at my client. And he just jumps right onto my client's leg. And he starts hopping up his leg and then wants to go up his body. And my, my client just reached down and put his hand in front of the frog. frog hopped onto his hand. And he puts the, the, his hand next to a leaf, and the, the frog jumped back onto the leaf. And it just posed for him, and he got him a, a, a bunch of great pictures of this frog. And it was just like one of those really amazing experiences, an interaction with a wild animal like that, that is supposed to be so rare, first off, and so shy, second off. And it was just quite the opposite 
That's amazing. In, in situ, you know, just amazing. Yeah, yeah. I love that stuff. I mean, I had an experience. It's it's nowhere near as dramatic as that, but I was, um, I mean, out here on the island, we're, it's, it's an island, so we're surrounded by beach. And I like to go in the wintertime because, number one, there's nobody there, and number two, because there's nobody there. So <laughs> I'm down there, and I'm looking up at the sign, and there's a lot of pigeons, and there's a lot of gulls, but... I look up and there's a peregrine falcon sitting on this uh, sitting on this sign, and I looked and I was like, "Is that what I think it is?" And yeah, it was, and it was just it was so amazing because it was just sitting there. I'm like, this thing can just come and go in, in any way that it wants, you know what I mean? And it's just amazing that the fact that I'm just sitting here six feet away from this peregrine falcon and it's just doing its thing. It's there because it chooses to be there. It was. It's experiences like that that really make being in something's natural environment so rewarding. I mean, you're you're really in the thick of it there because you're in, I guess they call it God's country when it comes to to herps, especially especially amphibian species. Yeah, it's it's pretty crazy the amount of, of species that are here. Now, which, which species? Which species do you kind of run into on like on a regular basis? Like, if you were guiding a client out there and they said, "Well, I want to see as many dart frogs as possible," like what what species would you run into? Uh, well, it all depends on where you are. As far as the the poison frogs go, uh, most of them are very easy to find. Like, I can I can almost guarantee every time that we go out that we'll find at least one frog or several frogs you know depending on the species and the location um <clears throat> the most common and easy species to find uh would probably be like the the terapodomorph imitator <clears throat> uh super super easy to find super common wherever it's found um the highland imitator is also very common um highland variabilis extremely common uh you know we can go into those forests and see like 20 or 30 frogs in like an hour or two sometimes you know on on a good day you know uh more commonly it's like you'll see mm, three four frogs up to maybe 10 frogs um in an hour or two walking around in that forest um other common species uh summer's eye is pretty common within its range uh, fairly easy to find if you know how to look for it. Uh, the banded imitators are common uh, where they're found. Uh, the, the nominal fantastica, mm, that, that one's fairly common. It's another one where I can almost always guarantee that we'll see at least a frog or two. We usually see several. Um, the Benedictus spot that I have, that's another super common frog there. Um <laughs> Amiregus species are super common, you know, Basilari and Trivitata, uh, Altamazonica, all super common species. Pongoensis are super common. Um, yeah, most most of the poison frogs are super common and really easy to find. There's a there's a few that aren't so easy, you know. The reticulated Fantastica. It depends on where you are, you know, but it can it can be like a intermediate too hard to find uh the lowland fantastica that's a fairly difficult frog to find the highland fantastica that's like an intermediate one you know it's not always easy sometimes it is sometimes it isn't 
but uh, yeah, most of them are easy. So if somebody tells me that I want to go see so-and-so species of dart frog, I can almost always guarantee it. If they say that they want to see atelopus or any other kind of thing, I know I, I can't, I can't guarantee that stuff. <clears throat> now what, what, like with, with a lot of the imitator species, or I really shouldn't say it, I should say the imitator, um, I guess the different locales, a lot of those loc- those locales are kind of confined to really small areas. I mean, is that is that what you're seeing out there? It's like you could be, say, on one side of a river and you'll see, you know, one uh, locale or one morph, and then you'll see another one on the other side. Have you actually seen that, like, in situ? Um, yeah, things like that happen, definitely. Um, especially in the Lower Wayaga Canyon. Uh, you can be... Like for instance, in, in Chasuta, you know the Chasuta morph there, which they're they're kind of like a mix between like the, the the spotted morphs, and it's kind of starting to go towards that intermediate morph. You know, so there's a weird mix there. And you even find sometimes these like really nice panther spotted frogs that uh, have like like a really super light tan color. It's not even orange, really. It's 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 like to the side of orange but it's like this light tanny khaki color it's weird with these just plain black spots on them there's no really super showy brilliant colors or anything like that but it's a really cool frog um and then from there you go a little further down river and then you don't see those frogs anymore you see the intermediates more and you go even further down you start seeing like a conglomerate of all kinds of crazy things you know um and if you cross the river, go to the other side, they're banded imitators. They're, uh, I mean, that, that, that lower Wayaga Canyon has a little bit of everything. You go even further down and you get uh, influence from, from the, the lowland striped morph. So, I mean, you can find <laughs> some kind of an influence from pretty much every morph of imitator in the Wayaga Canyon. It's, it's pretty amazing. <laughs> That's, that sounds pretty incredible. I mean, now, w- with a lot of the Ranatomea, I mean, are you finding them all, like, in the leaf litter? Are you finding them, like, kind of higher up? Like, where, where are you typically, like, encountering them? Uh, that, that also is species-dependent. Uh, imitators, for example, you will always find imitators where their um, host plants are. You know, you find you find imitators very commonly where there are Diffenbachia or Heliconia, or you find them around Santosoma, but much more around Heliconias or uh, Diffenbachia. Almost always, almost always around those two plants. Now, I'm not the plant guy that you are. I know that you're really, really into plants. Now, um, just in, indulge me. Are these similar to like bromeliads or are they, are they depositing eggs in them? Or like what's what's their relationship with these plants? Um, well, the, the Diffenbachia, how do I explain what they look like? Well, it's just kind of like a, it's it's a plant that has like a, a tall trunk that gets to about like two to three feet tall and kind of thick, maybe around like four to five inches thick. And it's a very fleshy plant. And at the top, it's got, uh, well, these, these 
these leaves with kind of a long petiole and the leaf is um, almost kind of uh, like paddle shaped, long paddle shaped. And at the base of each leaf petiole, there's an axle and those axles collect water. Um, so imagine like a like a long thin bear trunk and then at the top it's it's almost like a palm tree kind of look to it. Um, and in, in in those axles, the rainwater collects with debris and stuff and the frogs use those axles to deposit their tadpoles. And um, you commonly encounter this type of plant in very, very um, humid, shaded forest. Uh, that, you know, rarely dries out to any significant degree. So there's almost, there's almost always water in these plant axles and it's the perfect place for them to deposit tadpoles. And, um, not only imitator use these, but also summers I use these plants and where there are really, really dense populations of these plants, we put up, uh, plastic water bottles cut in half kneel through the trees. They're the, you know, the syrup. Um, kind of method of um, in situ um, breeding of these frogs. So we've gone and we've put out bottles and in areas where there's really high populations of uh, uh, Diffenbachia plants, and the frogs, when there are enough plants, they 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 seem they they tend to prefer to use the plants rather than the bottles. In in Sousy, for example. Uh, there's a really, really, really nice little ravine where there's uh, a good population of Randy Tomato Summer's Eye and the Banded Imitator Morph. We've put up a bunch of bottles around there, and they've been there for years now, and I've found like maybe like three or four tadpoles in bottles and all the time that they've been there. Um, the plants, the, the, the frogs just really, really prefer to use the plants there. But if we do the same thing in other localities where there are much, much less plants um, with phytotelms, where phytotelm is the, the little leaf axle that holds water that they use to deposit the apples in. When there are much, much less uh, phytotelm sites for them to de- deposit uh, tadpoles, the frogs will choose to use those Syrah bottles uh, because there's too much competition for de- deposition sites. So they'll refer to, they'll, they'll resort to using the bottle, sorry. Um, <clears throat> And the, the imitators, they'll also use heliconius, which are like these really tall, almost banana um, plant, these like banana-like looking plants. And they have really, really deep axles, um, which also collect water. And they use those to deposit tadpoles. So anywhere that you have good populations of these type of plants with these suitable phytotelms, you'll oftentimes find very healthy populations of the frogs. And when there, where there are no plants... You won't find populations, or you'll find very few frogs. Now, are these plants just endemic to certain areas, or are these plants having, I mean, are they being cleared for agriculture, or like are the, are the plants disappearing and then the frogs are suffering because of the loss of egg, de- of, uh, egg deposition sites, or is it just they just kind of are confined to a certain spot? Uh, well, a lot of these plants need very specific conditions in order to do well. So, uh, for for example, in the low jungle, uh, you don't see too many of these plants. Uh, it often gets too dry and too hot. Uh, 
and you'll see sometimes along riverbanks and stuff like that uh, populations of heliconias, but uh, they may not be an adequate species that collects enough water, or it just might get too dry to where the axles dry out and stuff, and you don't see too many frogs. Um, in the lowland jungles, uh, the the appropriate conditions for these plants to grow um, aren't always available. So you really have to search for like specific little microclimates in the low jungle to find these kind of plants. And so these frog populations are confined to these certain areas. And and where there are none of these plants, um, you can still have frogs, but the the, den- the density of the population will be much less because there's, mm, there's much less plants with these phytotelms. Um, where they deposit tadpoles, right? So uh, sometimes you'll find uh, uh, some Santhosoma plants in the low jungle, and you'll find the frogs in there. Sometimes you'll find like a little a patch of uh, heliconias. Um, they use bromeliads up in the canopies as well. Um, but it, it seems that uh, in, in a lot of these low lowland populations, the, the density of the population seems to be a little less... Um, Less dense, right? So when we put bottles up, these zero bottles up in these locations, the frogs use them. Absolutely. They use them. And they use them a lot. Uh, you know, we'll find, you know, five, six, seven tadpoles in one bottle. And yeah, yeah, it is wild. So, you know, a lot of people in the hobby say that, well, you don't keep more than one tadpole in, in per container because they're cannibals cannibalistic you know that's totally not true when there is enough available food like in nature there's enough available food and there's enough available space they will not cannibalize each other so you give them enough space with enough water and then enough food within that water they 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 coexist just fine you know and and in, in the jungle you've got leaf litter you've got seeds you've got bugs mosquito larvae and everything that are filling these bottles up like crazy and with that, you, you've got uh, algae growth in there. You've got rotifers and other things. And the tadpoles are feeding on all of this. So there's no competition for food. There's no competition for space because those bottles are, you know, decent size. And six, seven, eight, ten tadpoles could easily fit in there and, and not have to compete with each other. So we see that. We see that in, in, in these situations in, in situ, right? And uh, when you when you when you set up uh, an area of zero bottles like that, you know, fifty or hundred bottles or one hundred fifty bottles, whatever it is, give it give it some time, give it a couple of years, and you will notice that the population increases. It really really helps, especially these frogs that don't have a lot of phytotelms to deposit tadpoles. So it's a, it's a really great system. That was that was a. Uh, uh, basically created it was created by Rainer Schult who is a, a German biologist that's been living in Peru for forever now um, and that was uh, really really a brilliant idea of his it works so well that's amazing you know it's just it's funny because you think that like the the simplest things would be completely counterproductive in a situation like this you think that you would need to you know, have these have these very very specific plants in this environment, and yet just sticking a bottle out there <laughs> it accomplishes that goal. Now, have you seen 
like, I mean, does does one female occupy one bottle, or have you, do multiple do multiple females use the same egg de, uh, egg deposition site? Um, I am pretty sure that you'll see um, several pairs using the same deposition sites. Uh, not only, and not only pairs that of the same species or whatever, you know, you get several species using the same bottle. So we have actually seen in one bottle, um, tadpoles from Renitomea fantastica, Renitomea imitator or Renitomea variabilis and Hyloxylus, um, azuriventris all in the same bottle. So, you know, when you have enough space like that, there's like like I mentioned, there's no there's no competition for deposition sites or space or food or anything. So you have several different frogs depositing their tadpoles in one bottle, even different species. I remember in in a lowland fantastica site just outside of Pongo de Kainarachi, uh <clears throat> I don't know who, depo- who who put the bottles out there. I think it was Rainer Schulter, one of or one of his guys. They put out these great big, like two or three liter bottles on this on this huge tree, and with time they filled up with water and leaves and stuff. And, and we go over there and we we check the bottles. And since then we've gone and installed a whole lot more bottles. But in some of these big bottles that I, I'm pretty sure it was Rainer that installed them there, we have found. Um, the lowland fantastic tadpoles we have found imitator tadpoles and variabilis tadpoles as well as the azuri ventris tadpoles on the same bottles and you'll see you know like 10 15 azuri ventris tadpoles in there along with like uh two or three fantastica tadpoles or some variabilis tadpoles or something like that so like i said when there's enough space and enough food i mean They'll they'll deposit they'll deposit. That's crazy. It's that's it's amazing. I, I can only imagine what that must look like in the wild. What about some of the um the Amarega species? Like where are you encountering them? Amarega species, you encounter a lot of those guys in the same habitat that you encounter the Ranitomea. Um, they just inhabit a different niche of that environment. You know. They're, they're terrestrial frogs, so you find them down in the leaf, leaf litter. Uh, you'll find them up on the leaves of low plants, and they'll be calling from there sometimes. You'll find them uh, close to creeks and ravines and whatnot. And, you know, again, that's all species-dependent and, and habitat-dependent. Um, uh, like, uh, well, let's see, Amirega pongoensis um, in the lowlands north of Yurimaguas or even the lowlands from Pongo de Cainarachi all the way up to Yurimaguas. It's, it's a frog that uh, seems to be a little more localized to uh, patches of really, really humid forest where there's creeks and stuff like that and ravines. That's where you tend to find a lot of them. But then there's a population at the base of the Cordillera Escalera mountains, just behind um, Pongo de Cainarachi um, that actually go up to probably like six or eight hundred meters something like that and um 
I mean, you can find those frogs just anywhere in humid forests. They're everywhere. <laughs> so, you know, it, it's, again, very habitat-dependent and species-dependent, you know. Um, to kind of touch back on that, the, the phytotomes and the plants, when you get into the, the foothills of the mountains, anywhere between, like, 600 meters in elevation all the way up to, like, 1500 meters in elevation uh where some of these frogs will be found you get in in these mountains within these elevations especially around the foothills um excellent excellent habitat like ravines and hillsides and things like that that are just completely covered in these plants sometimes um so in those kind of areas uh the frogs uh, they don't tend to use the bottles so much and they and they like to stick to the plants um yeah, the Amirega, we've we've tried putting out some like larger uh, like plastic shoebox type things in the forest. And so far we haven't gotten any luck with getting Amirega to deposit tadpoles in them, but um, Hyloxylus, yes, do deposit their tadpoles in, the, in, in these bigger bins of water. That's wild. Yeah. That's, that's gotta be something. I mean, this is, this is all amazing. I mean, to be able to see all these things now in terms of like, you have a big insect background. I know that you're really, really big into insects, especially ants, but what, I mean, what have you seen a lot of these dart frogs feeding on in the wild? Um, I know it's a broad <laughs> question, but I mean, like what, like if, if let's just say for argument's sake, you wanted to recreate the wild <laughs> diet, of a dart frog, like what, like what are some of the species or some of the genera or some of the families? I mean, what have you personally observed them feeding on? I haven't, I haven't personally observed them feeding on too much because once you get close enough to the frogs and they, and they kind of get a little spooked, they, they tend not to feed so much, but that's not always the case. I have had uh, a few exceptions where frogs have gotten, uh, very used to our presence and they started feeding right in front of us. Uh, and they actually feed a lot on ants. Um, I don't know what genus this ant is, but it's a little sugar ant. Um, that's fairly common in the, in the jungle. I've seen them eat those. Um, I've also seen them eat crematogaster ants. Uh, they eat the heck out of crematogaster. They really like crematogaster um, I actually posted a, a video up on Facebook of a female, uh, Randy Tomea imitator eating several crematogaster ants right in front of me. Um, another thing that I've seen them eat are mites, but, um, you know, my, my experience there is very limited. So I, I can't say too much what their complete diet would be in the wild, but I could, I would imagine that it would be very very varied no it would be a lot of springtails a lot of a lot of columbia in, in general um a lot of different species of mites a lot of different species of little ants um and it, it could be who knows little larva of whatever other kind of little bug that's out there you know fruit flies are extremely common in the jungle in certain times of the year 
Like you can be walking through the through the jungle along trails and whatnot, and you'll see thousands of fruit flies just fly up off the ground. And you know they're feeding off something. They're they're reproducing somewhere, and I'm I'm assuming that their larvae are well. If the if the adult flies are that common, the the, the larvae have to be extremely common. So I'm sure the flies that the the frogs find those larvae as well. Um, I mean, who knows truly what, what all they're eating out there. There's so many different little tiny bugs and invertebrates and crustaceans and things out there. They could be eating little species of sow bugs or whatever. I'm, I mean, I, I can't honestly give you a good answer there. My, my experience is very limited there. Well, I mean, you definitely offered a lot of insight. I mean, just, you know, naming a few species of ants that they eat, it's just... In captivity, we're so biased in terms of what we think of as being like a varied diet. And really, I mean, our idea of a varied diet is Hydei or Melanogaster or both. And it's just, it's interesting to see a species to, 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 to feed in situ and be able to take full advantage of all these different insect species and arachnid species, all these different arthropods that are around them. Um, you know, it's funny, and I'm, I'm, I love to date myself here because... <laughs> Um, you know, it's kind of like become like a running joke. I just go on about how, you know, like what an old man I am. But in the 90s, and you, you and I are kind of similar in age. I shouldn't say that. But in the 90s, there was a movie with Sean Connery and Lorraine Brocco. It was called The Medicine Man. Did you happen to see mm-hmm. it? Yeah, a long time yeah, ago. Yeah, well, and, and, I mean, it was a kind of a corny movie. But they were, he, he had found, um, he had found some sort of chemical that, was being that he was able to synthesize into a cancer fighting drug so it turned out that they were looking for this bromeliad and the bromeliad grew only this one little tiny area and then ended up getting wiped out by um, a developer who was developing the land for agriculture and then he found out afterwards that it wasn't the bromeliad it was the ants i mean it's a it's a hokey movie it's 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 corny and ridiculous but you know it's interesting how one tiny little piece of that jigsaw puzzle can have such a tremendous effect on everything else around it. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, uh, a lot of these species are key species or, or indicator species of the health of the surrounding environment, you know? So if those species disappear, then you, uh, you know that there's trouble coming. <clears throat> Now, have you seen a rebound or a decline in, in certain species over the past few years that you've been in Peru? When I when I first went out to, to see poison frogs for the first time in the wild, which was like, well, I guess it was like five years ago, I guess, six years ago, maybe. I don't, I don't remember. Five years ago, I think it was. Um, in a lot of these populations, it was... It was fairly easy to find frogs. Um, not not all species were easy, but um, it was definitely easier than it is now. <laughs> and um, I noticed a decline, a big decline in several populations, and it was it was kind of worrisome. And you know that's why we started really putting out the zero bottles everywhere. And now we're starting to see a lot of these populations um, increase again. But there are there there is one population of lowland fantastica that just doesn't seem to be really doing much. 
Um, it's still just an extremely hard frog to find. <laughs> and I, I don't know why. I don't know what it is. Maybe uh, with global warming, maybe every dry season is gradually much more dry, increase in temperatures, or maybe it's just because they're isn't anywhere for them to deposit their tadpoles you know um i'm not at all going to say that the pet trade has anything to do with this kind of stuff because um i just i can't sing that being a big enough factor you know what i see what i see being a big factor in this is really habitat destruction habitat destruction is hands down the worst thing that's happening to all species on a world level you know and here in peru with the dirt frogs it's no different you know one uh, there was a really really amazing forest uh in the uh reticulated fantastica range and it was a place where you could you could show up and and hunt for a couple hours and you would at least find one frog if not two or three frogs and that forest the last time that i went there with some clients it was gone it had all been cut down and burnt to the ground. Sad sight. So, yeah, it's it's gone. All those frogs are gone, you know. And we we have now found uh, a couple other sites for the reticulated Fantastica. So, you know, there there's still frogs around that we can show to clients. But, you know, that's just one example of many, 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 many forests every year that are being cut down and burnt to the ground. And we're losing frog populations. We're losing uh, many other species as well. You know, yeah, I mean, I, I, that's, that's not news. Everyone knows it, but I don't think that, I don't think that people really understand the severity of it because they've never gone and seen it actually happening. I don't think so that's, people. That's actually one of the. That's one of the things that I like to show my clients when they come down. I take them to some of these areas and I show them, you know, this all used to be forest. Now it's all palm oil fields, you know. And they're like, "Oh my God, it stretches for miles and miles and miles and doesn't stop," you know. I so think that I think that they, a lot of people are kind of they don't realize how insidious habitat destruction is, especially. I mean, I, I have listeners. You know, in South America, I have some in South Africa. I have, you know, I have listeners all over the world. So I really, I do have to admit, you know, I'm going to be approaching the situations always from like a United States perspective. And I, I apologize yeah. for that, but I'm, I'm from the U.S. I can't really, you know, but it, it's very easy for people to forget about the amount of damage that habitat destruction does because, I mean, here in the States, you're not really seeing a tremendous amount of it in your own backyard with the exception <laughs> of places like, well, uh, I guess you could say Alaska with, with drilling and whatnot, but it's not happening to the extent that it's happening in other parts of the world. And, you know, in the U S I mean, take sugar, like take sugar cane farming, for example. All right. I had a lot of people, you ever hear the term greenwashing? People like to market a product under the idea that it is uh, sustainable and green and, and globally sound. You, you ever hear that expression before? Yeah, yeah. Well, I had someone, you know, try to explain to me that um, uh, they were trying to sell a, a, a tree-free toilet paper. 
And this person's rationale was, well, you know, we're not cutting down any trees. We're using the recycled pulp or we're, we're, we're using what would normally be discarded from the sugarcane from the sugarcane farms to make toilet paper. I said, okay, well, do you realize the amount of water that it takes to, you know, keep a sugar plantation running? And do you realize the amount of ground that had to be cleared for that sugar plantation? And then I get like that, that kind of like silence. And it's like, look, you have to understand that even something so simple as like the sugar that you put in your coffee in the morning is having a substantial effect on the world in general. And that's my, and that's my, that's another rant. <laughs> another yeah, one of my rants. I, I agree with you completely, you know, um, this large scale agriculture of, of the, the modern society, I think is one of the worst things that we could do. You know, I really honestly think that everybody should be responsible for their own, uh, food production, you know, just small scale, just enough to feed your family. You know, everyone has a house with uh, a yard. They could plant a garden there rather than a green lawn, grow their own food. And we would have a much, much, much less extreme impact on the on the environment if everyone just grew their own food, only what they needed in their own yard, you know. I'd have a hard time because my backyard is like 10 feet by 20 feet. So, <laughs> but you know what, in the well, city. you know, well, there's a will, there's a way. <laughs> yeah, in the, in the city now, there, there's been initiative. I mean, I, I've driven, through, you know, I, I don't live in New York City. I live outside of it, but... um there's actually been a lot of neighborhood initiatives to have like, um, gardens. Um, people do gardens on rooftops. They'll do hydroponics and things like that. So it, it is out there. It just, I mean, the other thing is like with, with COVID, anytime you get a substantial world event, which unfortunately happens constantly, you kind of go a step back. So I haven't really heard a tremendous amount about that because priority has obviously been, you know, public health, but you know, Getting those things to kind of become a part of the everyday routine is really what's going to make it, you know, f make it happen in the foreseeable future. Yeah, I think, unfortunately, as well, modern society has kind of been designed to make it much harder for us to be able to achieve these kind of things as well. But, you know, that doesn't mean it's impossible. Just like you said, you know, rooftop gardening and hydroponics and all this kind of stuff, those, those kind of ideas and technologies make it possible and you know if everyone uh took responsibility for their own um uh alimentacion oh god how do you say that in english <laughs> i don't i my i don't oh, know my so my simple. spanish is, is I, I very poor uh, well anyways if people took responsibility for growing at least a portion of their own food, it would really, really cut down a lot of that um, demand for such large swaths of uh, large-scale agriculture, you know? Mm. I mean, just to, just to go back and touch on climate change again, um, just to kind of get, get back on topic, I wanted to ask you, now, in, obviously, outside of Peru, outside of any biome there are going to be people that try to recreate that biome whether it be a zoological park whether it be a museum a research laboratory uh, a hobbyist 
what's the climate like in some of these areas that you well first of all how how big of an area are you actively um you know taking clients into and like what's the climate like i mean is is does it vary significantly based on location i mean has the has the overall climate changed since you've been there um I kind of noticed that it it seems to be getting drier every every year. You know, the dry season, a uh, little bit drier, a little bit hotter, and it seems to kind of vary. Like the rains will come a little bit later, or you know, they 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 might uh, they might end a little bit later as well. It's just it. I'm not going to say that it's uh, that s- since I've been here in Peru that it's changed dramatically. Um, it- it's been very, very minor changes. I'm not going to say that it rains any less than it used to, but it's just like the weather patterns are just slightly shifting um, is what I noticed. And then during that dry season, uh, you get you get rainstorms that come in <clears throat> all throughout the dry season. They're just they're just much much more intense and much more localized, and they they usually happen around like two three in the afternoon monsoons. You know, monsoons will come in, they'll form over the mountains, they'll they'll come across, uh, <clears throat> you know, they'll they'll move across the mountain range, go down to the lowlands or whatever wherever they go. You know, uh, it's very consistent throughout the dry season that happens, but you always get these periods of like a week to two weeks where there's no rain at all during the dry season and it seems like yeah yeah and it gets extremely dry and extremely hot so you know when people when people think that their frogs always have to be constantly uh you know bombarded with a with a misting system three two three times a day no it's that's not the case at all these frogs endure extremely hot and dry conditions for you know up to several weeks on end sometimes but it seems like that that those periods of dry that last like a week or two are lasting a little bit longer. And uh, the monsoons, when they start forming now, uh, when I first came here, the monsoons would form and they would just move across wherever and dump rain wherever, what, wherever, whatever city or town or forest or you know farm or whatever was in the way but now with with the with the changes in the climate i've noticed now that the monsoons will form in the same places that they always have but now they don't move across the same path that they used to their their patterns have changed so when i was living in terrapoto one of the things that i saw in the you know three years that i was there was that the the monsoons would form over the cordillera escalera mountains behind Terrapoto, just like, just like they always did. And they would start moving toward Terrapoto. But then what would happen is that the, the, the rains would split, the monsoon storms would split and they would go around Terrapoto. They would go down toward the South or they would go toward the North and go around Terrapoto. And they were no longer going over Terrapoto dumping rain. And, you know, that, that kind of weather pattern is, is, is much more common in many places here in Cusco, where I live now, it's kind of the same thing happening. I've noticed the same pattern that the, the monsoons, they form in the same place off to the East. They come up out of the, out of the jungle, go up over the mountains 
And as soon as they get close to Cusco, they're going around Cusco. And they, they don't they don't pass over Cusco so much anymore. They go around Cusco and they meet on the other side and keep going. And you know, a lot of this I firmly believe has to do with uh, cutting down the forests, clearing land. Because those those forests maintain humidity and, and the the trees produce some kind of chemical that helps induce rainstorms I, there was some recent study about it that was published it was really interesting i read it but it was it was interesting but i, I forget now what exactly the process was but it uh it it helps induce rainstorms brings rain you know so we're out there cutting down you know hundreds of acres of forest and it just so happens that they do this most uh, aggressively around cities and towns. So these these storms form over the mountains where there's still a lot of amazing uh, humid forest. And they start moving out of those mountains toward the city or toward the lowlands. And they're going around the city because there's, there's, there's no longer any forest around there to keep the temperatures down, to keep the humidity up. And then you have a concrete jungle in the city. It's literally like all concrete. The the construction here is like Lego blocks. You know, there's no land anywhere. It's just all like buildings on top of buildings, and they're all stuck together. Like a <laughs> the the way that they do the construction here, it's like one city block is basically one gigantic building. It's all one big giant construction. And all of the city blocks are the same pretty much. So it's literally a concrete jungle because all the homes are made out of uh, cement as well, you know, and that heats up very hot in the, in the city. It'll, it will be, uh, gosh, it could be like 10 degrees Celsius more. I would, uh, what would that be in Fahrenheit? I don't know. Like 20 degrees Fahrenheit more, 25 degrees Fahrenheit more. I don't know. I don't know what the, trend the yeah my my fahrenheit to, yeah, my, my fahrenheit to celsius um could, I, i'm terrible with the metric system terrible yeah. which is I, it, it's, I, it's I, don't, language. I don't do the conversions <laughs> yeah i mean the metric system is the standard for science now but people will they'll say oh you know i went 400 meters i'm like oh, a meter is a little bit more than three feet plus yeah it's embarrassing um, yeah, yeah. I mean, sp- speaking on plant, there's, there's a couple more topics I just I wanted to touch on before we got to the end. But I mean, okay. you are a you're a very very big into plants, especially carnivorous plants. Now, what kind of carnivorous yeah. plants are you experiencing out there in Peru? And I mean, do, are there any that you personally like? Do you have any like that you have in like a, your private collection that you take care of? Or? Um, yeah, I, I I collect some carnivorous plants and. Um, most of them are, uh, non-native species because there's, there's actually very few species of carnivorous plants in Peru compared to other parts of the world. So, um, there's a, there's a small community of, of carnivorous plant keepers here in Peru. And, um, I've managed to make friends with some of them and, and buy some plants and make some other trades and whatnot. So I've got a, I've got a little collection going. Like I said, most are, are non-native species, but, um, here in Peru, we have, let's see, three species of derosera, which are the sundews. 
Drosera condor, Drosera peruensis, and Drosera andina, I think it's called. And then there are three species of pinguicula, which are the butterworts. Uh, there was recently a new species described, which was which is the third. It's a, a pinguicula rosemaryae, which is a really nice uh, semi-epiphytic uh, species. And we have um, Atricularia here, the bladderworts. And there's um, there's not too many species, uh, maybe like a, a, a dozen or a little more species here. But the nicest ones, which we have in Peru, are in the Orchidioides uh, subgenera of Atricularia. And that consists of Atricularia unifolia, uh, Asflundi, uh, Gemisoniana, and a new species that I found at the beginning of this year. It's a completely new species, uh, and it's really, really beautiful. It's a, it's a fairly large species, and it has a giant white flower. The flower gets up to like uh, about six centimeters wide, which, what would that be, like four, four and a half inches, something like that, I guess. And uh, we've only found two sites for it so far. So it's, it might be extremely limited in range. Um, but we're actually going to be describing this plant very soon. We finally got uh, two specimens into the herbarium here in Peru. And I'm going to be working with uh, a biologist named Tilo Henning and another biologist named uh, Leda, a, f- a friend of mine that lives in northern Peru. And we're all going to be working together to strike to, to describe this new species of carnivorous plant that I found. It's really super exciting. You know, that's one of the things I love about living in Peru. There's always something new to find. And I've found several new things since I've been here. Now, speaking of new things, and this is, I, I know everyone knows I'm into arachnids. And I'm going to go out there and I'm going to monopolize the last couple of minutes of this podcast on my arachnid interest. So... If you enjoyed it for the frogs so far, thanks. But I gotta get <laughs> now. You had mentioned yeah, we, something. We gotta, we gotta give the tarantulas yes. some love. Yeah, you had you had mentioned some, we were um, Josh and I had we we had actually talked off air for about an hour the other day, and um, you you had experienced a couple of species. You, you sent me pictures of them, and these are tarantulas that exist primarily in in moss. That's what you that's what you told me, right? I mean, yeah, yeah. There's a there's a one species in particular that uh, that I found. Um, and I found the first specimen at the end of last year, and I went back and found a few more specimens. Actually, I found several more. Um, when was it? Like a couple months ago. Um, it's a it's a medium sized Hapalotremus species uh, that lives in high elevation cloud forest, and these high elevation cloud forests are completely covered in moss. Everything is covered in moss, like thick mats of moss, and you know sometimes the moss can be up to like a foot thick, a foot deep, and it's not sphagnum moss or anything like that. It's just like regular moss, forest moss. And um, you'll see 
if you if you look hard enough, you'll see like these little burrows in the moss. They're sometimes they're they're concealed pretty well, uh, but they're always perfectly round, and they have specific characteristics to it. I'm not going to go into the characteristics, you know, just in case somebody wants to go look for them. Uh, but if you if you know what to look for in these burrows, you can find them. And you you open up the moss and you follow the burrow down, and it just it just weaves like like uh, doing switchbacks through this moss, and then it'll end in in like a like a big chamber in the moss, uh, usually like right at the dirt level. When when you when you arrive to the to the actual soil level, um, the tarantula won't actually burrow into the into the soil so much, or or if they do burrow into the soil, it's just enough to make a little chamber, right? But uh, you open up the moss, you follow the burrow all the way down to the chamber, you find the spider, and it and, and it knows it's been had, you know, it's been found. So it it starts running around trying to find a place to go. And these things, like if if you're not quick enough uh, pulling the spider out of the out of the moss, it'll disappear like that, like gone, because they they have this really strange technique of using their, their, their front four legs or their front, the pedipalps in their front two legs. Sometimes they use all four front legs, but they, they do this weird like thing where they cross the front legs, like, like scissors and they push the legs into the moss and then they, and they spread their legs apart. So they're, they're opening the moss and they're literally like, they they open and and advance open advance open advance and it's like they're swimming through the moss it is the weirdest thing i've never seen anything like it in a tarantula and they can move quick like like i said if you're not quick enough they'll just disappear on you that's incredible i mean it's funny because of all the things that we talked about that was the one thing that like kept me up at night thinking about how absolutely incredible something like that is because I'd had a, I had a, a, a kind of a conversation with someone online about incorporating moss into a, a tarantula's terrarium. And, you know, I mean, moss in, in captivity can be, for people who aren't really experienced with it, it can be kind of tricky. It needs a lot of light. It needs a lot of moisture. But, I mean, I'm talking about a captive moss in, in a vivarium. I'm not talking about, you know, an in, in, in situ situation. But, you know, I told the person, like, hey, don't bother. You know, it's... um. You know, it's, you're going to need moisture. It's a fossorial species that doesn't, you know, it's not going to take advantage of it. You really don't have any benefit to it. And now to hear something like this, it's amazing how, like, just so far out of left field, something can come in terms of a, of a discovery of a new species and its and its habits. It's it's incredible, you know. I mean, I'm at a complete loss to describe how amazing that is. Yeah, yeah, it's it's amazing. When I first saw that behavior, I was... I was blown away, and to, to top it off, it's a really nice looking species too. You oh, it's, know, it's beautiful! Like a, it's absolutely yeah, a jet stunning. Black spider with that that cobalt blue on the on the legs, and then the 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 carapace is that violet color. Oh, it's nice. Yeah, it's really nice. Absolutely. Um, yeah, I, I have pictures of all of this stuff on my Instagram and my Facebook as well. So anyone that wants to go see them, they can go. They can go there and see it. You know. Yeah, and I don't. I know. I mean, we're not going to have as much time to get into it, but I mean, some of the photography work that you're doing is is really incredible. So I mean, if you can, it go go check. What, what's it's Muddy Boots Peru. Yeah, Muddy Boots Peru on Instagram and also on Facebook. Cool. 
I mean, before we wrap up, there's just one thing. I mean, this is kind of like just like a subjective question I ask a lot of the guests. But, you know, in terms of conservation and, and natural resources, I mean, I, I, I kind of understand, you know, your position on it. I mean, what's the local vibe in Peru? I mean, do you think that there is an awareness where you are of how important this type of environment is? I mean, what's what's your take on it? Um, unfortunately, the majority of Peruvians are not at all aware of what they have here. The, the extremely high amount of biodiversity that is here, um, the importance of maintaining that biodiversity in good health they just don't understand it. Uh, uh, unfortunately, a lot of Peruvians have this mentality that any any land with forest on it is land wasted. And you know where that comes from. It basically just comes from uh, them not having any other option. They haven't been taught anything different, and they haven't been presented with any other option. So the only thing that is left for them is to go and cut the forest down and burn it so that they get ash into the soil. They grow a crop on it for a year or two, and then they move on to the next patch of forest and burn it down. It's because nobody has gone and taught them a better way, you know, how to recycle their land, how to fix the soil and reuse it every year, um, how to rotate crops. Uh, Nobody has taught them about the importance of biodiversity and how it maintains life, you know. So um, the government here, unfortunately, doesn't really help either. It's not that there's no money in Peru. There's there's enough money. Um, there's enough resources. It's just nobody has taught anyone how to manage those resources correctly. And there are projects, um, like government projects, uh, that deal with agriculture and proper land management and proper habit habitat management and all this kind of stuff. But unfortunately, a lot of them are so focused on the agricultural aspect of it all and how to properly manage agriculture rather than how to properly manage wild spaces and natural habitats and maybe dive into how to manage that agriculture alongside of that natural habitat yeah it's 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 always a slippery slope i mean that you know the, the human element is a complex element and you know as far as you know like my attitude is you know i understand that the human element is it, it, it's it's crucial to every facet of, of of everything that happens on the earth and um you know people it's difficult when you put people in a position where, you know, you have to earn a living, you have to provide for your family, you have to, but um, at the same time, you don't have those other options or those options were never available to you in the first place. It's it, it's such a difficult thing, you know, and it's, I mean, I'm, I'm not there. I live here, you know what I mean? So I can't say exactly what's right or what's wrong, you know, anywhere in the world. I mean, all I can do yeah, is speculate yeah. and say, listen, I hope that, you know, everybody on a global level at least work towards maintaining the earth to the best of our abilities. And I understand it must be 
it, it must be frustrating to, you know, live in this area and see so much of it just kind of being destroyed for agriculture, you know, and all the while knowing that it's, it's not an easy question to answer. You know, I, I, I absolutely agree that, you know, land usage has to be managed in a way that is appropriate and in a way that is going to be responsible and sustainable. However, you know, there is always the sad reality that it's, it's, it's not something that we're going to accomplish overnight, you know, and, and attitudes do need to change, but obviously that's going to reflect so many other things, you know, and, you know, this is not in any way to disparage anyone from Peru or anything like that. I just, I, I understand exactly what you're talking about, how it must be very, very frustrating to have to see all that unfold, especially when you have such a vested interest in the, you know, in the cloud forest, in the rainforest that's around you. Yeah. It, you know, it's it's not like the the technology or the science or the education isn't out there on how to do things better, how to do things more eco-friendly or responsible or whatever. But unfortunately, you know, we're not getting the education out there. You know, the way that the, the way that people do agriculture here is is very outdated and there are much much better ways that aren't so harmful to, to, to the natural environment, you know, and there's just nobody out there getting the education out to these people, unfortunately. And, you know, a lot of it just really comes down to money in the end. People don't want to invest in that education and they just want to keep the farmers producing, you know, um, and, it's 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 going to come to a head very soon and it's going to burst and it's going to be a very very awful thing to deal with i think you know if we don't start taking action soon absolutely definitely well i mean the best thing that we can hope for is that i mean really all we can do is hope things get better and work towards that and you know promote conservation promote you know responsible and sustainable you know methods of farming and agriculture but like you said the most important thing obviously is going to be education it's going to be getting to people on a level that is you know is is easily understood but at the same time it's going to be practical and you know and and work out well for both parties so I don't yeah, know. You know, I, I always feel like every conservation discussion always ends on such a sad note, but it really is. It's, it's, it is a depressing topic. You know, I mean, you get excited about all this amazing biodiversity out in, the, out in these environments and then the knowledge that they might not be there in a year, five years, 10 years, 20 years is, you know, it's, it's a bummer. It's a bummer. What, one, one thing that I would like to touch on since we're, we're talking about mm-hmm. the, the topic of conservation and um you know kind of uh make a kind of make make a a reference to the hobby here i guess no no i i I, listen i everyone has opinions and i'm totally you know i i understand i think i kind of know where you're going with this but you know go ahead i i you know everyone everyone has a right to say something yeah uh Conservation is one of the most important topics that we're facing now. And I think that people do really just have to 
learn to be more responsible, you know, like in, in all of my experiences with nature and wildlife and in the U S and Australia and now here in, in Peru, like one of the things that I've really learned, like I, I stated before, the more I see these things in their natural habitat, the, the, the much less that I wanted to keep them in captivity. And now like, for many, many years now, I just, I've had no need for that. And I don't, I don't keep anything now. I just, I grow plants because I don't, I don't need it anymore. And I started realizing, you know, like I'm doing tours for these things, um, making a living off of these animals, off of these environments and things like that. Um, so those animals and that environment is giving to me something that helps me stay afloat. What am I giving back to those animals, to that environment? So that really, like, w- was really heavy on my mind for a while. And I just, I thought it through so much. And I decided, you know what? What I would really like to focus most of my energy in the long run, like all of the projects that I want to do and everything, I want everything to have an end of conservation of habitat because we can protect the hell out of a species. But what does that protection do if a farmer can go to that species habitat, cut it all down and burn it to the ground, extirpating an entire population of a, of a rare species. And that's happened here in Peru. It's happened several times, many, many times. So, Protection of a species is good, but that only takes you so far. What we need to do is protect habitat. Make it illegal for a farmer just to go wherever the heck he wants and cut down the forest and burn it to the ground, uh, wiping out an entire population of an extremely rare species and everything else that lived in that forest. So um, that's where my focus is, is going now. You know, I want to really focus on habitat conservation and and form several private conservation areas in some of these places where these frogs are found you know and and along with many other species and that got me thinking even more like man i've got all these people coming down that are hobbyists that will spend you know fifteen hundred dollars or two thousand dollars to have a trip or more to have a trip with me to see these frogs in the wild and whatnot. And then they go home with this completely different perspective of how the frogs live, um, how they should set up their terrariums. And then they'll like spend tons of money on a new terrarium, new plants and new frogs. And I mean, they, people do that without even coming down to see the frogs in the wild. You know, it's just what people do. They'll spend thousands and thousands of dollars on plants and frogs and glass and lights you know, it's ridiculous the amount of people, the, the amount of money people spend. So I would love to see hobbyists that, that, that love these frogs so much or love these plants so much or whatever other animal they keep that they'll spend so much money on. I would love to see these people take some of that money and invest it in something that is actually worth a damn. You know, love these frogs so much, but don't just... Love them in your glass box at home. Love them in the forest where they come from. Invest some money or time into these frogs in their native habitat. 
so that they don't disappear where they belong, you know? Um, All good points, you know? I mean, that's one of the reasons I do this show is, you know, I want to kind of bridge that gap between conservation and the hobby so that we're all on the same page, you know? Yeah. So that, that really got me thinking. The hobby is very selfish. It is extremely selfish, you know? Unfortunately, a majority of hobbyists just think about their collection, how big their collection is, how big their terrarium is, how, you know, having the newest craze or the most expensive frog or whatever. I don't know. Whatever it is that they, they, they have it for, they have it. But it is never for the frog. It is never for the plant. It is never for the, the habitat or anything. It is always for that person, the hobbyist. It is very selfish, if we took the selfishness out of this hobby and we started um, being more conscious about what we're actually doing, I think a lot of people would realize that it would be worth their time and money to invest into conservation of their favorite species. Because once they're gone in the wild, they're gone. They're gone. They're gone. They're gone. And, you know, if they're gone in the wild, well, People say, oh, well, they, we got them in the hobby. We'll, we'll keep them going in the hobby. Well, eventually they're going to go in the hobby as well because you know how hobbyists are. The next big thing that comes in, they leave all the other stuff that they had behind and they, and they stop collecting it. And then all of a sudden, a species disappears in the hobby. We're not managing our species well in the hobby and outside of the hobby. So that's that, that basically like the, that's the last point that I want to make on this on this podcast is – you know, why don't we start managing the hobby better, managing our wild, our wild resources better, and why don't we start taking the selfishness out of the hobby, you know? Don't just think of the hobby as, you know, your glass boxes in your basement with full of frogs and plants and stuff. No, start thinking of the hobby outside the box, you know, that saying, think outside the box. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, all all good points. All good points. Yeah, start investing into their natural habitat, into conservation stuff, and make that part of your hobby. You know, I'm not trying to convince people to donate money to me or I don't know, but just do something. You know, Um, there's plenty of organizations out there doing great things, and there's unfortunately not many people supporting them. Mm. Yeah, all good points. Um, we are kind of getting now to the end here though. So Josh, I mean, tell us, tell us about your Instagram and your Facebook page again. So if people want to see some of your, you know, your amazing photos, they can go check them out. Yeah. So, um, my Instagram is muddy boots, Peru, and I haven't, I hadn't been too active on, on Instagram for a long time, but, uh, recently I started, uh, being more active on their posting more pictures because you know it's uh it's a resource and i should use it i usually use more facebook i've got uh muddy boots peru on facebook as well as uh, my personal one which is josh allen and uh, you know i i post most of my photos on the muddy boots peru one but i've also got a lot of photos on my personal one as well um also two things that i need to start managing better as well but uh yeah anyone that wants to go see my photos or anyone that wants information on uh you know doing tours in peru or just coming 
visiting Peru in general. I know there's a lot of people that are even thinking about moving out of country and, and coming to countries like Peru. You know, I did it. I did it seven years ago and I went through all the steps. Um, I, I learned a lot about the process. So anyone that's interested in any of this kind of stuff, they can feel free to contact me on there. Send me a message. Um, even if they, they don't want to do a tour with me or whatever, they just want to come down and visit and they want some advice, they can hit me up and I'll, I'll help them out um, with whatever they need to, to make sure that they have a good time, you know? Very cool. Very cool. All right, Josh, I want to thank you so much for being on the show. Yeah, it was a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Oh, my pleasure. Anytime. All right. So I want to thank everyone. I want to thank Josh for giving us a great episode and plenty of things to think about. Catch up with you guys again next time.